what I like about what we see in handwriting because you kind of have you know he is the antagonist uh, but you can clearly see that he is getting some kind of enjoyment out of how clever this kid is like there he, there, there are points where I think I, I obviously he wants to catch him but I also think part of him wants to see how he's going to get away um because you, I think you would at that point. You're like, this guy's so clever, it would be anticlimactic. I, <laughs> I agree with you, Look, and I think it's because Frank Abigail Jr. is a kid. Like, if he, if this was a 36-year-old yes, man yeah. and he did that to him, I guarantee you Hanks' character would be like, he'd be dropping a second F-bomb, right? But <laughs> because it's literally mm. a kid and he just got played by a kid, it's like, ah, it's you got me. Funny. Like, and he likes that. And I and I guess you do you do see that kind of father son dynamic um, in 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 the career towards the end. I think, uh, and obviously not to, to spoil stuff. Uh, but if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the film, then you know we're going to spoil it. Uh, but I think the ending, yeah, you do kind of see that he likes the fact that it's someone he can teach the ways of the world to and. Have, have yeah, a bit of but fun. as Darren yeah. said, he's he's Hanretti is not uh, he's not averse to acting like a complete tool to him as well. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Now it's funny because obviously Frank is still um, he's still insisting on being a pilot. Uh, he ends up in some guy's office and he's interviewing and he's like, um, he finds out that he has the nickname the Skyway Man. Um, which I thought was quite funny. It's a good um, name, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a good nickname. Um, and obviously he resolves that he's going to have to stop doing this kind of pilot con because it's not going to work for much longer. Uh, and so he goes, he, he kind of goes to, he, go, he goes to a James Bond film and then he immediately goes to a tailor and buys some suits that are just like James Bond. And this is where Leonardo DiCaprio does like a little tiny bit of a, a kind of James Bond, Sean Connery impression. Um, for like a few seconds Um, and he also gets the same car because it's funny because the tailor says to him now all you need is like a sports car and so he immediately goes and gets himself a sports car uh, which I thought was fun and then he runs into uh, Jennifer Garner Um, you know Cheryl Ann uh, is going into one room and he's going into another and he kind of stops and sees her and, you know, he, she kind of says, you know, you might recognize me from, you know, some kind of uh, teen magazines. And... You might recognize me. Because you might recognize me, but I'm not. No, she says you, you might recognize me from Billion <laughs> Dollar Baby or uh, Carol. Is it Carol Interrupted? Is that her other movie? The one she got the Oscar for? I don't know, because this is Jennifer Garner. So, <laughs> so, what are you talking uh, about? Yes. <laughs> um, at this point in her life, I think she was still married to TV's Scott Foley. Um, uh, who... <laughs> that's that's his full name, but yeah. he was actually christened Radio Scott Foley. Well, yeah, <laughs> he changed uh, it for the movie. <laughs> I think it's funny because she like she divorced him and then immediately went out with Michael Vartan on Alias, and then she divorced. She, well, she didn't get married to him, but then she met Ben Affleck on on um, Daredevil, and then obviously they later on they got they got together, um, and they were married for and thirteen years. About... That's a one thing about Jennifer Garner is I'd say she's in one of the world's very few above-average Christian movies, um, Miracles from Heaven, which is a, a actually decent film. Um, I say that from the perspective of being a Christian and a filmmaker who despises like every other film that I'm forced to watch. But 
If I remember yeah. correctly, Miracles from Heaven is based on a book by somebody who claimed that they died and went to heaven, and then they completely recanted that story a few years later. So they basically said... Uh, no, that was... That, that, that you're getting a Oh, few I'm confusing it with something else. Uh, there, there were a few. Lied. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, well, th- there was a thing where there was a... So you're thinking of Heaven is for Real. Oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, that one. did a sim... Which, which, which was thought to be that, but at, but it was some other person who had a similar story who released who who recounted it but the heaven is for real film came out around the same time and so like the press linked them up whereas i i know i've i've interviewed the the two people uh who had the heaven is for real story and they did not recant it um and they're lovely people whether you believe their story or not they're, they're lovely people uh, i'm but, sure they yeah, are miracles and i certainly heaven don't believe their story was a, was a much yeah <laughs> <laughs> miracles so... from heaven uh i i i i have mixed views uh, but they can go listen to my podcast with them on Please Be Seated. There you go. But the Miracles from Heaven was it was like a, a, a child who like fell out of a tree and like she was trapped inside the tree trunk for I think like a day or so. <laughs> I'm not I can't remember. So there was, there was something where it was, it was it was like supposedly a true story and it was less big miraculous stuff, but it was more sort of community coming together and an answer to prayer sort of thing, um, which was just a nice sweet film um and just not as cheesy as other christian movies really it's up there with good christian films like machine gun preacher and, and the, re- the resurrection of gavin stone obviously like everybody's <laughs> favorite uh, awesome christian movie featuring former wwe wrestler <laughs> there, there's a there, there is a my all-time favorite is a is a film called um believe me which didn't really get released like considered much of a christian movie because i don't think they liked the fact that it was like a comedy that seemed to satirize the church but very clearly from a loving perspective um which was like about a group of college kids who tried to raise money um for a fake charity and get churches to donate so they can just get loads of money um but they and it, it's it, i can't remember what the christian message was but there was genuinely a very lovely thing um and some really good gags where, like, they try and start a Christian brand of clothing. And they're like, oh, what should we call it? I know. We'll call it cross-dressing. <laughs> nice. And it's like, like, I thought that was actually a really funny moment. Uh, so, I, I forgot the tangent. Jennifer oh, no, Garner. I was just going to say, uh, we already know Darren's favourite Christian movie because he mentioned it earlier in his Amy Adams collection. He loves Doubt. Um, the most Christian yeah. of all movies. <laughs> yeah, possibly the most. And the weird thing is, directed by the guy who directed... Joe versus the volcano. Oh, nice. Well, I, 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 I would say I think probably one of the most unchristian movies is uh, Large Door. Huh. Just a uh, just a quick question, uh, turn Joe versus the volcano. That's the Meg Ryan movie. I can never is, remember yeah. who her co <laughs> star is in that movie. He's features, a tall, kind of awkward guy. It features Meg Ryan three times, so that's how much of a Meg Ryan film it definitely is. Um, of course, uh, you know, uh, noted Christian Jennifer Garner here is playing a prostitute, a woman who sells her for money, and uh, she sells it for a lot of money. I mean, you know, um, when they when they mentioned the price of the magazine, he, you know, which was like I don't know, thirty five cents or something. Um, she's like, "How much would you pay for me now?" 
And of course, he takes him a while to pick up on what she's saying here. You know, he's like, huh? and then he's like, oh, right. Yeah. And he's like, a hundred dollars. And she's like, no. And he's like, I don't know, $200. And she's like, nope. Um, Go fish. She's got these cards that she's throwing at him. Um, and eventually they, they reach the compromise of a thousand dollars, which in like 1963, I mean, today, what is that? Like five, six thousand dollars? <laughs> like It's, it's um, got to be more, I'd say. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, you wouldn't just want it for the night. You'd basically want it for, I don't know, a month, a weekend, uh, more than more than what and he gets they, here. They kind of the, the thing is, it's almost played like a meat cute. But we never see her again. Well, the thing is, I I guess we never see her again because, of course, Frank uh, is going to go down to the hotel lobby to cash a check because he happens to have a ton of Pan Am checks for different amounts on him. Um, but he's going to cash one for one thousand four hundred, and she's sorry. In case I in case I completely forget to mention, you just for some reason reminded me that one time you said Frank that I am such a fan of this movie that I have two chinchillas, Frank and Carl. Oh, there you go. Oh, cool. There we go. Sorry, continue. I just <laughs> thought, how have I not mentioned that yet? And. Uh, <laughs> Because they are a father and son. Oh, there so you go. I, I couldn't call Makes them sense. Frank and Frank. I mean, you could have called them Frank Senior and Frank Junior, much like in this film. Um, yeah. But yes, yeah. of course, uh, you know Jennifer Garner. She she like she's like, don't go and cash a check. Give me the check, and I will give you the difference in cash. And so obviously she has four hundred dollars on her, and she's not realizing that, of course, when she cashes that check, <laughs> she's not going to be getting that thousand dollars. So effectively, he gets her for zero. Um, so that is how much of a con man he is. Darren, I just looked it up. Um, yes, give it to me. In Pretty Pretty Woman, yes, in 1990, right, which is set 30 years after this movie, effectively, uh, she gets three thousand dollars for the week. Yeah. So Jennifer Garner, 30 years beforehand, was getting a thousand dollars for the night. So we could just assume she was like, you know, that's uh, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Well, she has four thousand on her. Not four thousand. She has four hundred dollars on her as well, like to give him change for a check. Um, <laughs> so, when's your inevitable podcast of the history of prostitution in cinema breaking down? I mean, uh, I don't know. Probably a couple of years' time. I've got some other stuff I've got to work on first. Uh, but uh, they, yeah. they say it's the second oldest uh, profession in the world. Yeah, after podcasting, of course. People um, uh, <laughs> were podcasting about it before. I mean, back then they called <laughs> podcasting was just talking to people, but you know, it's the same thing. Oh, you got to listen to this Sarah Koenig. Yeah, yeah. She's really <laughs> telling the story. Yeah. Uh, of course, this is where we start the tradition of him calling Carl on Christmas Day. Um, and he tells him where he is and he says, come and get me. And of course, Carl's like, no, you're lying. <laughs> and I think it's funny because obviously from this point on, he kind of doesn't lie to Carl. Like he kind of tells the truth. And then Carl is the one who just keeps lying to him, um, uh, you know, which obviously I'm sure is some kind of commentary on the fact that one of them is a con man and the other one isn't. Um, but I like that in his professional role, there's no reason for Carl Hanratty to be truthful <laughs> with with Frank C, like Frank Jr. Like he doesn't need to be like the whole point is to kind of fool him. And obviously there are a few times in the film where he will do that. Um, and this is, is this, where is this the point where Carl says that he rang him because he's alone? Yeah. Yeah, he which says is, you've got like, nobody else to talk to. Yeah, it's a very poignant line because, like, he's really he really yeah. gets to the to the heart of the character there. That even though he's a con man and he's finds it very easy to make quick connections with people, he doesn't make any lasting connections, and that's what leads us to Amy Adams. 
Well, the funny thing is, before that, we get Jeremy Howard, who who pours some coffee for the guy and points out that the name Barry Allen is The Flash. Um, and that's obviously when Carl realizes that, you know, this is a kid. Um, and what's funny is that that guy, he was in uh, Men in Black 2. And I instantly recognized him because I was like, that's the guy out of Men in Black 2, which I think came out the same year as this. Uh, he's got a very distinctive long neck. Um <laughs> And that's I think that that's why they cast him in Men in Black, too, because he had a kind of alien look already. And so they they gave him like extra arms. But I was like, I don't think you needed that. That was overkill. He already looked yeah. like an alien. Um, I always think that's a that's a funny bit is like uh, Carol Hannity makes the connection that he must be a kid because another clearly 40 year old man <laughs> recognizes yeah. Barry Allen's name as the Flash. He's like, oh, well, it must be a kid knows this. Yeah, I think it's funny because obviously, you know, with the success of like the CW's Flash TV series and obviously the Flash appearing in like DC movies, these days people seeing the name Barry Allen would kind of instantly know it was the Flash. Like it wouldn't be something that needed like a 20 minute reveal, Um, you know. I I, I would say that weirdly a lot of superhero stuff is a big blind spot for me and if it weren't for this film I wouldn't have known. Well, obviously you need to watch more more stuff, Luke. You need to sit at home and do nothing but watch more stuff. That's what you need to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, Richard Curtis movies aren't as helpful as uh, as, as I had thought. Um, but does, the, does that does that whole subplot in um, the boat that rocked, um, where they just sit down and discuss who has the best alias as uh, as a superhero? They're so like Barry Allen. Nah, it's too there's obvious. Also sub- yeah, that's there's also a subplot in that where they rape somebody uh, and they pass it off as humorous. Yes. Um, Yes, that is of of like yeah that that does kind of ruin the film and I try and ignore that <laughs> bit because the rest of the film is really really nice and fun and it has the best soundtrack out of any film ever I think I really like sixties rock I don't um, think I don't think you've heard the soundtrack to the nineteen ninety film Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles so I mean you know it's got T U R T L E power as the main single I'm yeah by Partners in Crime Turtle K- Power. It's yeah. pretty good, pretty good tune. Yeah. The everything, these are all good tunes. But I mean, I I don't think you've ever heard the soundtrack <laughs> to the original Footloose from nineteen eighty five. I haven't heard all of it. It's no. a pretty good soundtrack. Um, but I've I've seen I've seen like I've absorbed. Don't, don't, don't listen. <laughs> I've absorbed don't listen all of Footloose it. through pop culture. Um, there's there's a certain few movies that that I'm not ever sure if I've actually seen or whether I've. Just I've only I've only ever seen the remake of Footloose. I've never seen the original Footloose. How, Darren? Oh, yeah. Well, I know how because uh, in 2011, well, yeah, there is that movie in the world. Uh, But obviously, Carl, now knowing that this is a teenager, he goes to uh, he finds out um, where the mother lives and he goes to speak to the mother. And obviously they find out that he ran away. Um, She's very concerned about him. um, And Carl is like, you know, he's not in trouble. We just need to get in touch with him. Um, and this is, of course, where, you know, Frank Abagnale Jr. decides he needs to change professions. Yeah, he's, at a, he's at a party, which apparently has some amazing fondue, which has got to be a lie because no fondue is amazing fondue. Um, apart from chocolate fondue, that is amazing fondue. Just get me get me a chocolate fountain of, you know, hot chocolate pouring out in a fondue fashion. That's good fondue. Everything else? No. I, I do I do enjoy chocolate fondue, but that one scene in The Vicar of Dibley just kind of ruins it for me a little bit when she walks right in of the chocolate fondue it's like I, I i can't do food mess it it really gets to me 
I've of every horrible thing I've seen in all of film and cinema, the worst scene, which if it's on TV, I have to leave, is the chocolate cake scene in Matilda. Well, I mean, I I cannot. The moral watch of the that. story is: do not invite Dawn French to your chocolate fondue party because obviously you know she'll just walk into the fondue. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm with I'm with you, Luke. I, I'm not I'm not a big fan of like messy food. The, like my least favorite scene is in the Witches of Eastwick. <laughs> it's like a vomiting oh. scene. That's absolutely it's it just it it goes on like it's one of those things where it goes on for too long and then it reaches the point where you're like oh it's come back around to being funny again but then it oh, also goes past no. to being funny again into too yeah. long again you're like but, oh. I mean, it's such a difficult balance to get in writing comedy i've just avoided that by default i am like i am not <laughs> i am not risking that um i, I know i've just i don't know if there's well i think I'm trying to think if there's a proper name for that technique. There probably is. Rule of 33 is what I tend to refer to it as. I mean... Um, uh, <laughs> you get 33 seconds. I mean, Witches of Eastwick is a great film. I mean... I mean, Susan Sarandon. I've not seen it, and I'm pretty sure it's still rated 18. I think it's a 15, if I'm honest with you. I did. double check. It's a great yeah. film, though. Uh, I mean, it might be 18, Darren. It might be 18. Just, I'm just thinking. Yeah, it's about an 18. Couple, Strong like, sex are, references and yeah, infrequent scenes, scenes of horror, yeah. which doesn't sound like an 18 certificate <laughs> reasoning. But yeah, when was it last? Um... Not, not now. Like it, it's really tame now. Like I would think it'd be a 15. I mean, you know, it does have Jack Nicholson giving all three of those ladies orgasms, but you know, it's Jack it Nicholson to have, in the it 80s. Seems to have last, Everyone was last, getting orgasms. Um, <laughs> I just had one thinking about it. Yeah, it seems well. Certainly, if Jack been... Nicholson was in the room, <laughs> last rated in 1998. Uh, yeah, I think that'd be a... entertainment. Release. I think it'd be a 15 today. If it went back to cinemas, I think it'd be a 15. Um, but you know, it is a good film. Uh, yeah, and this is of course where at the hospital checking up on his friend, uh, he runs into Amy Adams wearing braces and crying. Um, you know, not a state that anyone wants to see Amy Adams in. I mean, who's done this to her? Seriously, punch that person. You know, like, don't make Amy Adams cry, quite frankly. Um, <laughs> unless, of course, she's in the film Doubt, where she does do a bit of crying in there, but, you know. I think she also reasons. probably cries in Dear Evan Hansen, considering her son's dead. I mean, she definitely cries in June Book because she loses a child. So, yeah, it's pretty sad. She loses a... Uh... She loses a child in um, in Arrival as well. Yes. Yeah. So I'm just starting to think she's very, very careless with children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nearly yeah. as bad as Liam Neeson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we, we've been talking. I don't know why I put on an accent for it. I already have an accent. <laughs> yeah, you already you already sound like Liam Neeson. Why were you adding? Why were you adding the accent? I don't understand that in the slightest. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. Like, that is full on. I sent a submission into We Hate Movies, right? Where, so it's a, a big podcast. Darren, I'm, I think you listen to it. You I've listened to a few episodes. I'm not like a regular yeah. listener. So they do like uh, one month a year to take like listener submissions. So I rang up and so the way you do is that you have a number, you ring up and you leave your message saying why you take the movie. So I rang up and did the speech from Taken, right? In a Liam Neeson voice, right? And then finished with my own voice, just to say, yeah, it's a really good movie. I think you guys would enjoy like talking about it because there's a lot to laugh at, but it's also yeah. quite a good movie, right? And then the so it ended up getting picked. Um, just they randomly pick one out of a hat or whatever, and they played my submission. And then at the end, they went, 
you're doing an impression of Liam Neeson and then when you talk you sound more like Liam Neeson <laughs> than your actual impression because my impression you you start flattening out your voice and trying to make it yeah. really deep because you think he's got a really deep voice but then when you actually listen to it his voice isn't like it's, he doesn't have like a, he's not like a hey, uh, you've got my daughter like it's just you've got my daughter like, yeah. yeah he's, so he's got that's thing, the thing, thing. He's got more of a lilting voice than anything else. It's yeah. very musical. The yeah. thing as yeah. well, just on the topic of Liam Neeson, uh, I just want to talk about how underrated who's, the movie Chloe is. He's not in this is. film, by the way. No, no, no. I'm aware. <laughs> uh, but I want to talk about how underrated the movie Chloe is with Liam Neeson really and Julianne Moore. That's great. And I, love, I love Chloe. It's, 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 in, it's in, my, uh, in my DVDs. Can you guess where it is? Uh, it's in oh, your, I can't remember wait, the director's name. It's in your Julianne Moore. No, he, no Luke actually got it. It's 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 it's, it's uh, Atom Agoyan. So it's it's with my other Atom oh, Agoyan yes. films. I I am. Um, you can we can get me to watch a movie by putting Amanda Seyfried in it. Um, but <laughs> Darren, that Darren, movie <laughs> is a great film. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard you say. It's in with my other Atom Agoyan movies. <laughs> That's his name. His parents were scientists. No, they no, it's just Atom. it's just the idea that you would have another. Yeah. Uh, what what else? Movies. What else has he done? He did Exotica, and he did um, uh, the one that he he did he did a film with uh, Alison Lohman where she plays like a, a journalist. Um, I'm trying to remember the other Atom McGoyan films. Oh, he did um, Sweet Hereafter. Um, and he did that one where um, Bob Hoskins puts on a Birmingham accent. Um, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm disturbed at the he, concept. He's from Birmingham? Um, yeah. But I, I mean, it, going with interesting names of directors, because that's a tangent now, um, I... I despite having only seen one of his films, really like the name of Bobcat Goldthwait. I mean, everyone loves Bobcat Goldthwait. That guy's, that yeah. guy's wonderful. I've, I mean, there's the one of his films, which I think I will have to wait till I'm 18 to see that I am fully aware of. Uh, yeah, but right. I really, really like World's Greatest Dad. Uh, yeah. Luke, I, it, I just, it's so funny to me that for somebody your age and into movies, that to you, Bobcat Goldthwait is a director, like a talented director. And to me, he'll always be Police Academy and Police Academy 2 idiotic, um, loud character. Despite having seen those films, I full on, don't even think I knew he was in them. I just, I really like... He's not in number one. He's He's in in the second one, yeah. Yeah, and then he's in number three. He's the guy who goes... And talks like that. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, well, I, I was World, World's Greatest Dad is one of my favourite films, so that's all I know him from. <laughs> what, what I was thinking of was Where the Truth Lies. That's the the Alison Lohman film that he did, and then he also did a film called Devil's Knot, which I saw at the cinema, um, which is okay. It's not great. Chloe's probably better than that, but uh, the Sweet Hair after it's a very good one ton. It's a very good awards. Christian movie. I hear. Do you uh, have um? Do you have the, a Bobcat Goldthwait collection? Uh, I mean, I do have Sleeping Dogs, um, but I haven't got World's Greatest Dad. The video game. But yeah, Felicia's Journey is the film that I was thinking about where Bob Hoskins plays... um, He plays a Birmingham-accented pedophile. I have seen that movie. Yeah. That's not a bad movie. No, I mean, it's a really good movie. The the girl, uh, Elaine Cassidy, is like the main kind of character. Um, And I think she's Irish. Is she Irish? I think she might be, yeah. Or is she... No, yeah, she's from Dublin. Yeah. So she is Irish, yeah. But she's she's done films yeah. where she's putting on American accents, isn't she? She's in the others. Where she, she did. Plays she did. American. She did a lot of um, a lot of Irish TV when she was coming up. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, Atom McGoin's a really good director. That's why that's why I have a section that has 
films with Adam McGoin, you know, directed. Yeah. And I think that then transitions to my Alison Lohman films, which includes Matchstick Men <laughs> and uh, what's the other Alison Lohman? Uh, Broken Flowers. Those are the two. Those are the other two Alison Lohman. She's retired from acting now. She was in Drag Me I to Hell, and then she retired. Forgot that Bro- Broken Flowers was a film that existed. I saw it, and I think I liked it. It was very, very slow. I'm sure you liked Alexis Dienzi in it because she's fully nude when she walks. <laughs> she just walks out full frontal nude to Bill Bill Murray, and Bill Murray's just staring at her, and then she walks back off. Having <laughs> what, been watching that film, like I remember watching that film with my parents. That is the that's only bit be I remember yeah. because I remember the. <laughs> what is why? <laughs> I remember being my my train yeah. of thought. I can I yeah. could imagine the reaction watching that with parents. Matchstick Men is is a pretty enjoyable movie. The funny thing with Matchstick Men is it it works on the premise that you don't know who Alison Lohman is, and so when she says I'm a teenager, you're like. She must be a teenager because she looks super young. And then when you find out later on, spoiler alert, she's like 25. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, she's 25. Clearly, Leonardo DiCaprio would not date her. Um, Just a random question, Darren, yes. uh, before you do move on back to the podcast. Why did she retire after Drag Me to Hell? She got married. She got married. She had some kids. That's it. Same as Cameron Diaz, I think. Cameron Diaz got married, had a couple of kids. Was like, that's it. I'm done with acting. They both just retired out of nowhere. Uh, kind of surprising. <clears throat> and so Amy Adams, uh, you know, she I mean, she's great in this role. I love her in this. Like her the way that Leonardo DiCaprio and her interact. Obviously, they're both the exact age age, but they're both playing like teenagers. And so there's a kind of weird innocence um, that they both have. And I also like the fact that he kind of immediately go like the fact that she's got braces and he he keeps talking about when he had his braces out, which obviously is probably just like. Six months before this. Eight, six months ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the way he's related to it as if it's from years ago is kind of funny. Like just, I mean, we, we skipped over it, but when he's on the plane and they say, do you want to drink? And he's like, milk. <laughs> and, you know, seeing the shock on his face as they take, like, you know, there's little bits where they kind of hint that he's still a kid. And I like that as well, you know, like, um, but yeah, Amy Adams is just absolutely amazing, you know, kind of. I'm, you know, it's really weird because like after this, she didn't like work for a couple of years until she did June book. Like, you know, just... like, like DiCaprio in this film, I too have had the privilege of often looking older than my age. Um, I was at a, a, a screening of a film at one point, and then they just came around and were like, "Would you like a shot?" And I was like 15 at the time. <laughs> I didn't. I told them I was 15 just to see their face. Uh, but it was. But I was just thinking, "Wow, that was easy." <laughs> and then the, the only time I have been ID'd. Not that I'm going out doing things that would regularly need being ID'd, but I was once ID'd, like, a couple months ago, for a 0% Copperberg in a Weatherspoons. I was out with friends that were adults, having a meal, for which I've, you know, had an alcoholic drink with a meal anyway, because that's allowed. But I thought, oh no, I'll order a 0%. And at that point, they were like, oh no, sorry, you're not allowed. And I was like, okay, bit weird ruling, but sure, that's fine. And then, but then they kept, like... Some member of staff came to my table like, are you the kid who tried to have a drink underage? We're keeping an eye on you. And I was like, I tried to order a 0%. And then every time one of my friends would order an- like another round of drinks for them, uh, for like among them of the, the alcoholic kind, they, 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 would, they would hand it to them and then they'd stand at a distance waiting to see if they'd give it to me. And it's like, well, I ordered a 0%. <laughs> like, I just, if I was trying to sneak a drink, I probably wouldn't order a 0%. The, the last time anybody asked me for ID on anything was... I think I was like 25-ish and I went to buy like a craft knife and they were like, uh, we can only sell these two if you're, if you're like, they were basically like, 
we need to see ID. And I was like, for like this knife. And they were like, yeah. They're like, we can't sell it to you if you're under 16. And I was like, you telling me you think I look 15? And they were like, you're not 15. I was like, no, I'm 25. And they were like, oh, okay. Like, they didn't, I didn't show them any idea or anything, but I was just like, that's insane that you think, that you th-. but the thing is, I'd bought some glue that you needed to be like, you know, just like, you also needed ID for it because it was quite a strong glue. And, you know, obviously there are things about, you know, people sniffing glue and whatever, but it was really weird to get kind of, Hey, darn. Yeah. What, what were you making? <laughs> uh, I can't remember, to be honest with you. Like, I was, buy- I was buying the supplies to do something, and I, you know, years later, I can't remember what I was doing, but I remember being, like, asked ID. Were you, were you making some checks, darn? No. <laughs> oh, I was going away, darker room, where it was like, oh, I ordered a knife. I, I just had to, I had to buy them to do something, just a few supplies, and it was just like, oh. I was getting my stuff together. <laughs> I, 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 to be honest with you, I can't even remember why I needed a craft knife. I just I just knew I did, but and it was one of those ones that had, like, the, you know, you, you push it out, and it's got lots of blades. But, and they asked me for ID, and I was like, "Are you serious? You think I'm under 16? <laughs> like, and what? And just in you, uh, like checking that with them, they were just like, "Yeah, whatever." You just well, when in, I said when I said I, when I said I'm definitely not 16, they were like, "Oh, okay." But the thing is, they'd already sold me the glue, which also required ID. But they, uh, yeah, it was really weird because I was like, "I've just bought this glue from like downstairs, and it was in a WH Smith." That's, that's um, strange. With the, with um, yeah, th- th- there's been a few occasions where like I've gone and bought a load of DVDs in like charity shops and pick some stuff up for like family or whatnot that I'm not old enough for and they've just I'm not, I'm rarely questioned either because I'm wearing a mask sometimes and I guess that covers up the patchiness of my beard a bit um or like they just don't care and they probably just don't really think <laughs> I mean I would think in charity shops that's they're kind of like we it's, we just want to get rid of all this stuff People keep yeah. bringing it to us. We just want to get and rid let's, of it. Let's 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 be honest. How many people around my age are buying DVDs? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, like, they probably think a... automatically. They're like, you've got to be thirty because you're buying DVDs. There's there's six of you, Luke, and you're all on a list, right? Um... <laughs> I'm I'm only just about getting to Blu-ray. Like I, I am still DVD over Blu-ray most of the time because I'm like, hey, I can watch it on more platforms, and then I find out that my laptop doesn't have a disc drive, so never mind. Interestingly, the character that Amy Adams is playing is called Brenda Strong, <laughs> which I thought was weird because I knew for a fact there's an actress called Brenda Strong <laughs> because she was in a few films. I I've seen including starship troopers uh she also apparently appeared in starship troopers too um and she was she was the voice of mary alice young on desperate housewives and that is where i remember her being oh. from um, and that started like in 2004 so a couple of years after this so it's interesting that an actress called brenda strong um is you know like the name of the character in this film i guess it's a common enough name um but yeah so obviously uh, amy adams is comforted by leonardo dicaprio here um and he decides that instead of being a pilot he's going to change to being a doctor um and he changes his name to uh frank connors and he makes up his own certificate from harvard <laughs> which he he does by applying black letter onto uh you know the kind of the right stock of paper and putting himself a little seal on there and then signing it and everything. Um, and, you know, there's no openings really at the hospital apart from somebody to supervise the midnight shift. Um, and what I like here is, you know, he comes out and obviously he's got all his nurses and his doctors there and he's like doing roll call. And I like that the one doctor is like, are you going to do this every night? And he's like, well, you know, 
uh, yes. <laughs> and if you're late, then obviously, you know, we're going to kind of give you... I, I just love the idea that he's kind of... He only knows school. So everything he does, he kind of ends up reverting into kind of like teacher-pupil stuff. Um, you know, and so it's kind of funny that like when he's when he's given the role of supervising people, he basically takes roll call as if he's a teacher. Um, yeah, and well, in its in its doctor stuff, you've also got the whole bit which he copies off the TV with the "Do you concur?" Is that yeah. before this or after this? No, no, that's after this. After like, because never mind. Uh, yeah, because he's he's running the midnight shift, and uh, Brenda comes in to show that she's had her braces off, and of course, this instantly turns them both on. Uh, but in the middle of them, uh, what I like as well is how his hair gets kind of ruffled and he gets called and he's like kind of, you know, there's another doctor. Don't worry, you know. Like, and then she's like, shouldn't you go? And he's like, I don't really want to, you know, <laughs> I just kind of like his reluctance because he knows, obviously, that he's not a doctor and yeah. he knows this could this could be an issue. And I don't think it's in the film, but, you know, the reason that that Frank stopped being pretending to be a doctor is because there was a call where they had a blue baby and he didn't know what the term meant he didn't realize it was a baby that had no oxygen and so obviously the baby survived but because it was such a close call he decided that he needed to stop doing that in the film they portrayed slightly differently but that was the reason why he yeah. stopped um but i do like that it's yeah this like... this this kid's broke his leg and he comes in and there's two doctors there and copying what's on TV, he does the whole do you concur? <laughs> and I like that because the one doctor doesn't concur, when he's when the first the other doctor suggests treatment and he's like, Yes, very good, and he walks off and the, the, the guy's like, Why yeah, did I should have concurred? Yeah, why didn't I concur? <laughs> and I love I love the kind of the fact that he's doing this kind of fake doctor thing, but the the real doctors are kind of fooled. Um and obviously yeah, he goes it's, to it's, a janitor's closet to throw up because he doesn't like the sight of blood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I think that, that sort of thing is fascinating because the, the do you concur is something that I kind of remember vividly. So I knew that was coming. That extra punchline I'd completely forgotten. And yeah. for the for most part, I think that's it, it, that on its own, the do you concur, would be one of the weaker gags. But the idea that they then pull you in and go, no, this is the punchline, is, I just think, like fantastic comedy writing. Yeah, the guy obviously being mad that he didn't concur <laughs> and he thinks he did something wrong, um, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, the, the funny thing is, he, you know, he's not he's not kind of like, uh, you know, a doctor for very long because Carl Hanratty has tracked down his father. And what I like is how, of course, Carl Se uh, Frank Sr. instantly lies to Carl Hanratty when he realizes he's, he's from the government. And he says, oh, yeah, no, he's, his son is in Vietnam and, you know, he's he's very brave. And, of course, Carl isn't really buying that. And he does see, you know, the letters have been coming from, um, you know, Leo throughout the film. And he sees a postmark for Atlanta, um, you know. And, of course, by the time he finally gets to Atlanta, you know, uh, Dr. Connors will be long gone. Um, we get a discussion between uh, Amy Adams and uh, Leonardo DiCaprio where, you know, she talks about her father and how she's not talking to her father because she was pregnant and he arranged with a friend of his, uh, you know, for her to have an abortion. And that's why he's not talking to, you know, uh, her parents, um, you know, who are played by Martin Sheen and Nancy Linehan. Uh, this might be the only time that Martin Sheen has worked with Tom Hanks, to the best of my knowledge. I don't think he's worked with him previous to this. Uh, what I love about Martin Sheen is obviously <clears throat> Martin Sheen, his real name is Ramon Estevez, and he is not Irish in any way at all. And yet on both the West Wing and in this film, he plays a super Irish character. So Irish that him and his family sing along 
to uh, the song about Kelly. What's Kelly of the Kelly of the Emerald Isle? <laughs> they sing. They sing along to it, and it, it's like they're talking about how they're very Irish and stuff. And it's like that guy's Hispanic. He's not Irish. So what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, just because Martin Sheen pretends to be Irish on the West Wing, uh, which I think, of course, you know, started uh, a few years before this. I think this was right in the middle of when the West Wing was on TV. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting that Martin Sheen keeps playing these super Irish characters. I mean, on the West Wing, his character went to school at Notre Dame and is extremely Catholic and was going to be like a priest. Like, there's a whole thing about him kind of... And it's like, he's not Irish. It's weird. Um, ah, we claim I'm now to be sure. <laughs> yeah, so that, so that, that, that song, that whole TV show they watch, like, sure, yeah. that's fine. That part in the musical, which we haven't yet talked about, is, I think, the most pointless song. So I've not I've not seen the stage show, so I don't know what it what's happening on stage. But on the album, it's just like save the musical discussion because right before that, um, <laughs> obviously Frank says he'll get engaged to Brenda. They go to New Orleans. Oh heck yeah, that's a very important scene. <laughs> and <laughs> and well, what's very important is when asked to pray because obviously he's claiming that he's Lutheran. Um, <laughs> um, Leonardo DiCaprio does a Christopher Walken impression in this film, which I love. Because he tells the story of the mice. And because he's heard his dad tell it so many times, the way he recites it is by going into a Christopher Walken impression and saying the story the exact same way that his dad did earlier in the film. And I love that touch of him. Like, obviously, he's imitating his father, but his father is played by Christopher Walken. So it's a very specific cadence to the story. And it's just like a really weird kind of like... I don't know. It's like wheels within wheels. It's just, it's just a really, it's just a really interesting thing that he does it that way. And obviously, it's not a proper prayer, but he just says "Amen" at the end, and then the mother is like, "Oh, it's very interesting." The two, <laughs> I just kind of love. I love how he keeps using these things that his father did, you know, including kind of taking out necklaces and at random times uh, to give to women. I like how they, you know, those are the things that he kind of gets by on is like copying the lies that his father told. Um, you know, and obviously his father's just literally lied to cover where he is. Um, uh, but yeah, and I like that. Obviously, the FBI managed to get to the hospital, and you know, with his certificate, just a little bit too late. Um, you know, he's already moved to New Orleans. He's already thinking about becoming a lawyer. <laughs> which he does by saying that he did like. I like when he says, you know, where did you go? You know, to do the, you know, to kind of be pre-law. And he says Berkeley. And I love Amy Adams' reaction of like kind of <laughs> really excitedly being like, that's where her dad went to university. Like she really like sells it. Um, it's such a great moment. It's it's so wonderfully comedically tense as well. Like it's it's, I guess, almost the perfect level of dramatic irony as well is like obviously we as the audience are the only people there who know that he didn't. And that whole kind of. Um, and the teacher exchanges. and the dog. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's so brilliantly well done and so tense and genius how he gets out of everything in that. That yeah, I I, I love that scene. And obviously, you know, Martin Sheen can even though Martin Sheen is is fairly tiny, he's not like a, a tall guy. Um, he can be quite intimidating, <laughs> um, particularly when he questions him, and we see this shot of him kind of standing over us, being you know like kind of talking about you know like. Uh, tell me tell me about yourself and he's kind of like you know trying to say you know you're a doctor you're a lawyer you know who are you and we kind of think that maybe he's going to tell him the truth um but obviously he doesn't tell him the truth he kind of just says you know forget about you know doctor lawyer because you know deep down i'm just a person who really wants to get married to your daughter 
Um, and also, where can I take the bar exam in Louisiana? <laughs> so, it's, which I which I kind of love. Like he's 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 thinking about like moving on to his next con um, at the same time. Uh, we should also say at this particular point, uh, there is a uh, you know uh, was it Judy Garland singing "Sweet Embraceable You," um, and she uses the G word, and I'm like. That came a little bit out of nowhere. Like, all of a sudden, I'm hearing the word gypsy in the middle of this sweet song about being someone being embraceable. <laughs> I was like, this is taking a bit of a left turn. Um, but yeah, that really threw me out. I was like, I don't remember that song having that particular word in. But I guess, you know, it was pretty common back then. Um, but yeah, I mean, the singing along to Kelly of the Emerald Eye was a little bit weird when uh, Amy Adams is sitting on Martin Sheen's lap. And I'm like, okay um like and he's kind of like leonardo DiCaprio is kind of hugging the mother but he's not going to sit on her lap um but i did think that was a funny moment because it was almost like in his eyes it was always like do i get to sit on her lap or do i just stay sitting here like this he feels like he's about to consider it and then he's like no 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 we'll just i'll just keep singing along to the song um and of course it takes him like even though there's words on the screen it takes him like a you know a full run through before he kind of catches on and Again, it's him. How quickly he's able to kind of sing along and pretend that he knows the song is quite is quite interesting. I find that I find this scene weirdly tense. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. It's like maybe it's just like you don't want Frank to get caught, or also Amy Adams is so adorable. Like, like I was shocked when you were telling me she was twenty eight in this movie. Yeah, like the same age as him. I think he looks a little bit older, and I think she one hundred percent passes for somebody who's seventeen or eighteen, and she's really nice and she's clearly into him and knowing that he's about to break her heart it's just like oh, i can't oh. yeah i mean so i guess I, it's funny because i think like this is kind of like the last big set piece of the film um you know he obviously he goes to see his dad and his dad now is uh you know turns down another car and his dad is just a poster worker you know he's working for the government um and i like how christopher walken kind of gets mad at him this is i think the last time we see christopher walken in the film where he's like you know where are you going frank obviously in the christopher walken voice which i'm not going to do um but i like his kind of cadence <laughs> like where are you going frank like just kind of angry at his son you know at this point now for the con um and you know that leads him on christmas eve to call carl hanratty and th this is going to be his downfall of course because he says, oh, you know, I haven't been Dr. Connors for months. and But the thing is, he's like, yeah, he, he definitely is still that name because that's the name she knows him as. And that's when they start scaring the papers for, you know, engagement announcements. Uh, yeah, and so I what I like here, I like this engagement party. It looks wonderful. Obviously, the costume design is amazing. Um, you know, everybody's in white. And, you know, this it's obviously in, <laughs> I'm guessing, a mansion that was built for people who own slaves because it seems like that kind of mansion um and not the first time of course that tom hanks has occupied one of those uh you know obviously oh, you i think you can kind of tell that he he Ab abignell feels bad about the fact that she's uh that, that he's hiding this from her like there there is i mean obviously when he really confessed it but like through the, through the whole thing i think you can kind of see that he's properly fallen for her um and and that of of everyone, he, I think he feels most guilty about hiding it from her. And then, obviously, when you're talking about the uh, the the dad, there must have been two points I was trying to remember uh, with the, the, with um with his dad. Is whilst you've said that you know there's a lot of debate and discussion about whether he made 
so much of this up. One bit which I think Abagnale himself has said didn't happen uh, was the fact that he he didn't see his dad again. Well, I mean, we'll we'll find out later on what the situation is with that. But um, it's interesting because obviously, you know, I, what I love in this is particularly there's a shot where the FBI, FBI pull up. He's going up the stairs and we just see this light cast across, which is obviously, you know, car lights pulling up. And he kind of looks back almost as if he knows which car it is. And then obviously sees some people giving ID. And this is what sends him into a panic. And like you say, he confesses to to Brenda everything. And he's basically got suitcases full of money stashed everywhere. For some reason, he takes it out and starts throwing it on the bed and then putting some towels into a... Into it, I don't understand why he did that. He already had the money in the cases. Just take those and buy clothes later on. You buy another case and fill it with clothes. Like these were really good towels, Darren. Well, I mean, I can understand that then. Um, but what I like is how you know he's basically revealing everything to her. He's like, look, I've got literally hundreds of thousands of pounds, and my name's actually. Can, can I just cut in just to say what I like is that the last thing you said before Luke cut in is uh, Tom Hanks is no stranger to owning slaves. And then Luke cut in. No, being in. Back for being you in. to talk that it was in the movie. <laughs> He's no stranger to being in a plantation house because, of course, in Forrest Gump, his parents... Yeah, that's what I just own. think it's very funny that that was the last... I didn't say only said. slaves. That wasn't what I said. Oh, sorry, uh, sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, so... Tom Hanks, slave owner. <laughs> so, obviously, we see the FBI guys talking to Martin Sheen and, you know, kind of wondering where Frank is. They get directed to the room. Before Frank leaves, after kind of, you know, a wonderful performance from Amy Adams, as she's kind of breaking down, not understanding what's going on, he says, you know, meet me at Miami Airport in two days. Um, you know, here's, like, a huge bundle of money. <laughs> you know, pay a taxi driver to drive you all night. You know, like, come and meet me, and then, you know, we'll go away from all this. Um, and then, of course, this leads us to like the kind of the final real proper set piece where um, Frank kind of spots that there's a plain clothed FBI guy. You know, they all wear hats. So obviously when they take their hats off, they have to put them somewhere and he spots a hat in the back of a car and he knows that he's been betrayed by Brenda. And so he on the spot comes up with an idea, which is he's going to be a pilot again. And the way he's going to do this is by or you know auditioning for air stewardesses. <laughs> and he immediately hires out a hall. He puts out a notice and all these women turn up, including uh, Amy Acker from uh, various Just Whedon projects, including, um, what's the one with the guy? Angel. Who's a vampire? Who's Angel. Angel, that's it, yeah. So most famously known from Angel. I think she was still on Angel when this film came out. Um Oh, cool. Yeah, so she's one of the winning uh, women, and he basically forms a barrier of stewardesses around him, knowing that everyone will be distracted by their beauty, um, and they are very attractive. I mean, you know, it's uh, what I like is how kind of almost cartoonish it is that literally every single guy is basically uh, that fox from the cartoon where his eyes pop out. Like literally, all of the guys as they walk past the police officers, the FBI, anybody, all they're doing is staring at all these air stewardesses, obviously in these uniforms that he's probably paid a lot of money to get. Um, and he kind of just hangs back. And then he also pays a guy to um, sit in a car outside. And, you know, as he's as he's walking past Carl Hanretti, Hanretti gets a call on one of the radios, uh, on, sorry, on one of the phones. And he's told that there's a guy outside sitting in a car in a pilot's uniform. And of course, all of the FBI and the police then go outside to this guy who kind of gets out of the car um, he then reaches into the car, which I would feel would be a bad thing to do these days, but I guess in the 60s they weren't so trigger-happy, and he pulls out a sign that says, Hand Ready. Um, obviously, we find out. And then a, a plane flies overhead, and I guess we're led to believe that Leo's on that plane, but I don't think he would have gone into the plane that quick. But, 
it's a nice. I was thinking nice the shot. exact same thing. Yeah. It's like uh, thirty seconds later, also... a plane flies over, and it's like I don't think he's on that but plane. I also, I also kind of it, it made me just kind of love and appreciate the language of film even more. That no one said that, but everyone watching goes, "Leo's on that plane," and yeah. just when you think about <laughs> what that is, like that is fantastic show not tell filmmaking. Not me, Luke. I I was watching that and I went. Leo's somewhere in security line. <laughs> he's, probably, he's probably just taking his belt off. Like, that's, where, that's where he is right now. He's taking his shoes off and he's regretting his sock choice because there's a hole just on, on his left pinky. I'm very specific with how I'm, I'm visiting what's happening. In well, it's what it's all we can expect from a man who hosts a DiCaprio-themed podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, you know, DiCaprio <laughs> recapio. It's, it's a very important part. Uh, yeah, uh, we, we see later on, obviously, that, um, you know, uh, that basically uh, Carl's in trouble. He's let him get away. He's let him leave the country. His boss isn't impressed. Um, and to, to be honest with you, this is just a guy who's passing checks. Like, you know, just let the guy go. Who cares? Um, but I think it's I think it's funny. I think is this I think it's this, this point that he goes to see the mother and the mother's like, um, I'll refund the money, and he's and she's like, "How much is it?" And he's like, "One point three million." <laughs> it's like, oh. I love the kind of shock on her face. Um, but yeah, you know, he, like the kind of the, the 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 kind of the baiting of him with this guy in the car is kind of funny. Um, and he goes to a couple of guys who t- kind of tell him about the the new checks because obviously Carl's like he's been he's gone to this country, that country, like he's obviously passing checks around the world. And, you know, he says he's getting desperate. He must be running out of checks, you know, running out of places that will cash them, basically. Um, and he wants to go to Spain, which it's like the FBI don't like you don't get to cover cases in Spain. Like, that's not a thing you do. But uh, we find out that maybe uh, from these two old guys who were looking at the checks, they're like, this is impeccable. Like, it's the best we've ever seen. Um, and, you know, he's basically printing it on a Heidelberg. Um, as a graphic designer, I remember when I first started in graphic design, uh, I don't know, 1998 it was. And there were some people that who I worked with who had worked on Heidelbergs. And at the time, I think the price of a like a, a four-color Heidelberg was somewhere in the region of about £75,000. Um, and if you go on eBay today, you can buy yourself a modern Heidelberg and it'll cost you about £22,000. <laughs> so they... Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but the thing is, it's because it prints... When it prints, it prints the stuff inside the paper. It's not on top of the paper. Like, that's how good a printer it is. It's it's inside the paper. Yeah. And obviously, you know, once we eventually get to where, um, you know, where Leo is, we see him in this, j- like, literally like a, like a four-ton Heidelberg. That is, um, I think they're called a windmill, which is, it basically takes the first, a piece of paper and it sends it around and around and around. And each time it goes around, it adds more colours. Um, and so, yeah, he's got this whole thing going where he's just basically printing blank checks. Um, and, you know, it is Christmas once again. And of course, Carl has finally tracked him down. He realizes that, um, you know, he's in France. He's in his, his mother's hometown with this gigantic printer that is churning out checks. Um, and I love this. I love the kind of capture the like the interaction between the two of them as like he keeps trying to come. He says to him, you know, there's like there's French. There's like gendarmes outside with guns. If you go outside, they will shoot you like I've got to come out first. You know, like, put these handcuffs on. You'll be safe. I'll lead you out. They won't kill you. And this whole conversation where he's like, he, he literally does the whole, you're going to have to catch me. And he's running around his printer. And he's kind of desperate. He's just there with like, wearing his, like, vest and kind of, kind of got ink all over him. And it's clear that this is, like, the last stand. But I like that the two of them are basically kind of 
uh, lying and outwitting each other. Like they're trying, they're one up in, and to the point where eventually, kind of Frank is convinced and he's like, okay, you know, I'll put the cuffs on and I'll come out. Um, I kind of got the feeling that from Frank's first interaction with Carl, he knew that it was inevitable that eventually he was going to get caught and so just wanted to have fun with it. Like yeah. there, there was just the kind of proper feeling where he's like, you know what, might as well, all or nothing, have a bit of a laugh. <laughs> and and th- there is that kind of lovely childishness to it, which I think is why that title, Catch Me If You Can, is fantastic because it is, at the end of the day, a kid playing a game. <laughs> Yeah, and I like that when they eventually step outside, like the way that he turns around and he's like, he's like, well done, <laughs> like well played. You know, you completely convinced me, and there's literally nobody here but like a kids' choir and a bunch of snow. Like, and then the French do turn up, um, including I think the real Frank is there arresting, um, arresting the fake Frank uh, in his cameo. Oh, cool. um, but yeah, I lo- I love that this is kind of like you know. The, like this is the the culmination of it like we were kind of back around to the beginning where we've seen them on the plane um you know and obviously the, once we get back to the plane now we're in the present day now we're in 1969 um this is where frank is told because he's like i want to call my father once i get back and you know this is where it's broken to him that his father's dead um and it's weird because of course he still even uses his grief as a way to con people (laughs) so he goes into the toilet and starts wailing and banging and you know obviously in the moment it looks like he's obviously devastated about his father's death um but then once once they kind of they're going to land we find out that he was using that as a cover to take out some of the uh various bolts so that he could get out through the toilet and into the (laughs) into the undercarriage and then as they land a stuntman wearing a wig it's not leonardo dicaprio uh, jumps off a moving wheel and kind of ducks his head out of the way so you can't see that it's not Leonardo DiCaprio and kind of runs away and I love that like right to the very end he's still conning them with the kind of the wailing and the shouting in the toilet um, as he makes his escape um, and I like that they don't bother to show us him trying to get out of the airport or anything it's just a jump cut straight to him seeing his mother and his mother's new family obviously last time he spoke to his dad he realised you know, he keeps doing all this stuff so that his parents will get back together uh, classic divorced child actions and you know he he's one step away from parent trapping them but uh, obviously he doesn't because his mother has remarried and she's got like a daughter and he sees that and then of course this is where he's kind of finally arrested again um and you know he doesn't get away this time uh, and of course cut to in prison and carl visits him and we find out that it is once again christmas day <laughs> because that's the only time they talk and i kind of like that the the kind of like that's that's kind of the thing i like the kind of carl is is kind of keeping that up almost almost to be like twisting the knife a little bit <laughs> just be like merry christmas you're behind bars i caught you um and of course this leads there's like a, a bit of curiosity because he's got his bag and obviously we know from the pre, you know previous interactions in the film that he always kind of works christmas so that some of the other guys who've got families can have the day off and you know he frank's interest is kind of peaked when he's like you know i've got i'm chasing someone and you know these are the these this is kind of the evidence and he shows him the check and he immediately goes oh it's a bank teller <laughs> and i like it's like oh you know of course he's the ultimate con man he would know what the con is even if all you do is show him just one check. Um, and I kind of like how there's a bit of a puzzled look on Carl's face when he's like, and then he realizes, of course, yeah, of course he'll know who this is and what is, what's going down. Um, and of course, that then leads to him immediately in the next scene being brought that to That leads check. to Leonardo DiCaprio saying, 
quid pro quo uh, <laughs> Hannity. And then that's where he gets his donuts and stuff. Because clearly, like, it, it, it's, it is very Hannibal Lecter-esque, only in, like, a chirpy, happy, kind of friendly way. Yeah, it's like, help help us catch all these other people who are doing what you're doing. It is literally uh, the tale of, you know, every kind of, like, bad guy, you know, turned turned good guy. Um, and I like how they bring him a check and he, he kind of goes through all the points to say, oh, well, it's not this and it's being done like that and it's, in, it's, you know, it's on top of the paper, it's not in the paper, so it can't be this. And him just kind of, I like the way that Carl's almost kind of proud of how good he is because he's there with this other guy and he's kind of trying to show him, look, this, this guy needs to come work for us. And I, I just like how each time he gets more and more details, <laughs> Tom Hanks kind of starts smiling a little bit more as if to say, like, you know, look. I was right. This guy is, you know, he's obviously a con man, but he's he's going to be the one who can help us catch these other con men. Um, and then, you know, obviously they offer him a job at the FBI, which he finds out much like Homer in the, you know, uh, the, the the kind of the, the the nuclear power plant. He he was going to be doing it forever. Um, and unfortunately, Carl doesn't put a sign up so that he can cover it up with some pictures. He just he just tells him, you know. You're here from 8.15 to 5 every day until we say so. And this is where the TV series White Collar, loosely inspired by Catch Me If You Can, would uh, would take on the rest of the story. Um, yeah. I mean, we get one final temptation as, of course, Frank walks past a shop and sees a, a pilot's uniform. He puts it on and then he's followed to the, <laughs> to the airport by Carl, who said he was going to see his daughter. Um, again, we find out that Carl has kind of been lying in that, you know, like he said he wasn't married, but, you know, he, in reality, he said he didn't have a family, which is correct, because, again, he's divorced. You know, he's got a wedding ring. And then he says he has a daughter and the impression is given that she's young. But obviously, it turns out she's like in her 20s. <laughs> and, you know, he says at the time when I left, she was four. So it's it's kind of clear that Carl all along has been hiding pieces of himself away from um, Frank so that he can kind of deceive him himself. So, you know, who's the con man? The FBI or the guy who cons people? I think it's, it's the second one. But, you know, um, what I like here is he's given the choice. He's like, you know, if you want, you can, you know, you can fly away if you wish. We'll come and catch you. It's not a problem. But, you know, if you want to, you know, come back to work on Monday morning, we've got no problem. You know, like fly for a weekend, you know, indulge your temptation. But you've got to come back. And, you know, that's it. That's the end of it. Like one last kind of hurrah. Um, and... You know, he obviously returns Monday morning. We get a title card saying that obviously they were friends for, I don't know, 26 years or something. Um, you know, Frank got married to his wife. Uh, they had three sons. They remain friends to this day. And of course, he ended up opening up his own firm to kind of, you know, talk about bank fraud and forgery. Uh, one of the things that apparently Frank Abagnale used to do is he would go into banks uh, with like you know fake checks and stuff like that and try and pass them and then when they when the bank did pass them and paid out he would then go back and say can i speak to the manager then he'd get the manager out and he'd go this check's fake and you've just given me like two grand <laughs> like and then he would say you know this teller did it and like he would kind of he basically show up the banks and then the banks would be like um okay come and show us what's wrong and that's that's kind of how he made his money was like in the early days was just basically you know as the same way a lot of hackers did in the 80s they would hack into government agencies and then the government would say you know you're not allowed on a computer anymore unless you're working for us and it's the same kind of thing they no. would kind of turn them that way wasn't there a famous one where a guy he hacked the stock exchange or some version of stock exchange and just left a message was like my name is my phone number is you really need to hire me 
and uh, and then they did they hired him to to basically work as you know anti-hacking yeah the person you're thinking of is a guy called jonathan james uh, yes that's the guy yeah he was like a he was like a gray hat and he would like hack into things and leave his message um unfortunately he died at the age of 24 from a self-inflicted gunshot wound um oh, but yeah he was he kind of he he would break into like the dod and nasa and banks and stuff and kind of leave a signature and then when he was eventually arrested they were like you know um come and work for us and then it was like okay um and then he he kind of he did he like he had some other hackers who did like intrusions into um other kind of like big um you know kind of websites and stuff for like barnes and noble and stuff and then they kind of ended up hiring them to um you know kind of stop to them. work his defense against yeah. that stuff yeah. yeah so that's kind of that's how it works but yeah you know so and that's the end of the film uh and i think uh when did frank abignale die a few years ago i think if i remember correctly uh no he's still alive i killed him i was he's gonna say alive. i'm pretty uh no the i'm F- pretty the sure he's still alive because the, the kind of the person yeah, Carl yeah, yeah. he was based on died in like 2005 uh yeah. apparently he'd seen the film and he liked the film and he thought it was very good um <laughs> so um and it's weird because uh obviously the to tell the truth thing from the beginning that actually happened in 1977 frank abignale appeared on to tell the truth um i don't think the script was the exact same as it is on the kind of fake version of the show um but uh yeah apparently I f- yeah i think i've seen the footage of him on to yeah. tell the truth um obviously in recent also- years the claims have been People have been like, yeah, I don't think you quite did what you said you did. But obviously, it's from the 60s. It's hard to verify. Um, but the weirdest thing, of course, is Frank Abagnale was like, if I ripped off Pan Am for like $2 million, do you think Pan Am would admit to somebody ripping them off for $2 million? <laughs> like, you know, that's so, uh, you know, the kind of the yeah. whole idea of the con is like, do, do you think people would admit to being conned? That's how you that's how you con people. Um, you know, yeah. you take the money. Didn't. Didn't he also say that? So it, it was shadow written. It was written with somebody else. Yeah. Didn't he say that he he gave the events as they happened, and then the other guy, like as, the way Abigail Junior does, he's like he puts his hand and goes. I mean, the other guy made it a more interesting story, but it's it like it all happened. It might not necessarily have happened exactly as it says in the book because you needed a narrative, you needed a true line or whatever. And you're like. Yeah, that sounds a little bit like you're just passing it off. As yeah, it feels like exactly what you want in a book of something is what happened. Like that's, yeah, yeah, it, it it that does seem very strange. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because of you know yeah like it, it was kind of told to a guy uh, who is called where is his name gone Stan Redding. Um, Stan Redding, yeah. Uh, and the the funny thing is, obviously, I, I you know the way that it's the the one thing in the film I think that people like the, you know were kind of true um, is the fact that he did pass the bar. Like, took him three tries, but he actually just passed. Like, the way he passed the bar was by passing the bar. Like, he didn't cheat on it. He literally just basically be, like kind of you know studied a lot and ended up actually kind of passing the bar. He didn't have a law degree, so I don't think he was actually qualified to practice law. Um, but he passed the bar, so. Uh, but I think it's funny that that's kind of the one thing that like Hanratty can't figure out is the thing that is actually true. Everything else that's kind of fake, he sort of figures out. But the one thing that's actually true is the one thing that he can't get. Um, but yeah, as you say, yeah, like the way Frank Abigail tells, tells it is like he basically said, you know, this is what happened. And then the the writer kind of structured it in a way. Um, there's a couple of jobs that are missed out as well because he was, um, you know, like the 
there's like a, a, a he's also like um uh like after he stopped being a doctor he then also did he like kind of was a teacher for a bit as well and then he became an attorney um you know but yeah i i i mean to me it's really weird because like i think they could have told this story in the same way that they told philadelphia in that philadelphia is based on something that happened to a person like a person was discriminated against because they got aids and they sued them and they won but this but the film philadelphia is not based on the actual events in any order um you know when you, when you say philadelphia darren you mean the denzel washington movie <laughs> the one sorry the, yeah yeah the denzel the denzel film philadelphia um but which has obviously been covered on the podcast uh denzel denzel washington is the greatest actor in the world period um but yeah yeah, yeah. it's a great great podcast. yeah and um uh, unfortunately, I think all of it's behind like a paywall now. But yeah, it's that's a great pay- podcast. Um, but yeah, in, in Philadelphia, like at the very end, they're like, "Oh, this was based. This was inspired by the stories of this person and this person." Like, there's a, there's a kind of inspired by credit at the end. And I think with this, if they'd have if they'd have changed the name from Frank Abagnale, they could have just told the same story, and people wouldn't have cared about whether or not it was true. You know, they and then at the end, they could have said. I mean, at the beginning, it does say, like, inspired by true events. It doesn't say based on a true story. So, you know, they've got a bit more leeway. Whether or not the book is accurate or whatever, it came out in 1980. It's about stuff from 1969, <laughs> 1963. Like, like, it's so hard to kind of verify stuff. Um, you know, obviously in this, we don't see that he also, like, forged a passport to get to France. And, you know, like, stuff that they kind of miss out. Um but I think kind of overall, it's like the idea is this is a guy who was so good at kind of forging stuff that he ended up working for the FBI. And I think that's a compelling story, whether it's true or not, is completely separate. Um, but then, you know, later on, for some reason. I mean, I guess I could say that about pretty much everything that's been on Broadway in the last 18 years. For some reason, they turned it into a musical. Uh well, I've never heard it, but obviously, you know, Luke, you are the, I, you know, our Broadway correspondent. So obviously, you have to fill us I've, in. I can confirm. I have never been that. <laughs> uh, I am like indifferent on most musicals, but I like. Uh, so my my uh, first of all, like my my sister is a fan of um, massive massive Les Mis fan, and Aaron Tveit plays Andreas in the 2012 Les Mis film, and Andreas is like one of her favorite characters. So I was researching Aaron Tveit stuff and i was like oh hang on there's a musical of cash me if you can i like that movie and uh so i I listened to the musical um soundtrack several times i i think it is one of my favorite musical soundtracks honestly the um the performances at least on audio are amazing and the voices surprisingly resemble it doesn't sound like someone trying to do an impression but they all sound like the characters from the film singing which is like pretty good mm. um the christopher walken one is fantastic um but there are some really great songs there's some very pointless songs but there are some really great songs um that have come out of it uh i i think the, i think the interesting thing about the musical is the fact that uh norbert leo butts which is a real name uh won uh, a tony for his performance um as carl hanratty um and i know him from uh the film dan in real life uh, which obviously has got a lot of people in it but i remember seeing him in that um and then there's like been a couple of other films where i've seen him in and he's been like a guest on quite a few like tv shows and i and it's like that's weird that that guy's got like two tonys <laughs> for, for the for a role that 
um, Tom Hanks didn't even get like a supporting actor like oh, yeah, award that's a for. Really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, his, his performance is fantastic. Don't break the rules, which was the one song that I would share if I ever get the, if I get the chance to, even if it's just sharing on a group chat afterwards. Is a fantastic song. <laughs> it's weird because uh, the guy who played, who you mentioned, uh, who plays like the Leonardo DiCaprio role. Yeah, uh, I know he didn't him. Get anything. Well, I know him from a TV show called Graceland, which was on the USA Network, which was about a bunch of undercover uh, operatives from various departments who live together, um, like you know, from like FBI and CIA, all living in the same house. Um, and then later on, he was on a CBS show called Brain Dead. Uh, which was about politicians who had like alien worms and that's why they're also angry at each other. Um, and the opening credits for every episode of Brain Dead were done by a guy who like does musicals and like it was like a recap and those are really fun. <laughs> so if you can find those on YouTube, you should watch those because they're really good. I, I shall, I think. Because um, yeah. they've both been like things that I have heard of but know very little about from when I've researched Aaron Tveit things to see if there's anything that my sister would find interesting. <laughs> but I remember I bought her the Catch Me If You Can album uh, for her birth for her birthday or Christmas or something. Um, and she didn't get around to listening to it for a while, so much so that I'd listened to it first, which is not normally how presents work. But I was like, you got to listen to it, you got to listen to it. She didn't get around to it. I was like, well, I'm going to listen to it. And I remember playing it for the first time while doing the washing up, and it was great. And then I think I... There was a thing that a friend... I never, like, got around to doing much more than, like, two songs, but a friend of mine once said that he'd give some money to charity if I made an entire album of cover songs just for him. <laughs> and I was like, why the heck not? And so I did one of the songs from um, the Catch Me If You Can musical, uh, the Don't Break the Rules, Hanratty song. Uh, I've no idea if I've got that saved somewhere, but that, that was a thing that I did. Um, it was only on Broadway for 170 performances. Uh, yeah, I think it, it was around the tour. time the Book of Mormon uh, kicked off, and that was kind of like the big show of the year. Yeah. Some of the people who worked on it also worked on Hairspray, which, of course, the movie version stars Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Alongside his uh, co-star from Batman Returns, Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. Um. Darren, this is this might be something that that Luke's never hasn't come across because again he's younger than us. Catch Me If You Can really feels like a movie that would have had a soundtrack released, music from and inspired by the movie Catch Me If You Can. Do you remember those <laughs> where it was like, yeah, here's a collection of twenty songs that r- might that might have been in the movie, probably weren't, but you know yeah. they're kind of similar to the tone. I, I am I am aware of those albums i have a few oh, they were and they annoy the, me the mid 90s early 2000s were filled with those things i mean i think i've got the, i've got the soundtracks to like cruel intentions and 10 things i hate about you and like some of those songs do appear in the film but they're like for 10 seconds in the background you can barely hear them. people love love that 10 things i hate about you album um, oh yeah no it's a yeah. great uh it's very uh it's good darren but it's very much of its time like i mean it's got two letters to cleo song on there i mean who doesn't love Letters to Cleo? Uh, the famous Boston band, which, of course, 
is where Carl Hanratty is meant to come from. Uh, so let's go to judgment. Also, I feel like I feel like no one was expecting this show to feature multiple references to Cruel Intentions. Uh, <laughs> over the course of, but yeah, it's a good it's a good soundtrack. I don't have the album, but it's a yeah. it's a good a good soundtrack. And they did the the inspired by thing did carry on slightly to the point that I'm pretty sure in 2012 the Hunger Games has a music inspired <laughs> by the serious? Hunger Games yeah. album. Oh, man. Uh, I, I studied the Hunger Games uh, A-level film. Well, Taylor, Taylor, Taylor Swift wrote a song for the Hunger Games soundtrack that, um, that isn't anywhere else. So um, I can't remember if she did it for the first film or the second film. She definitely did one. Um, but let's go to judgments. We obviously have two ratings on here. Uh, I think people are returning guests, so they know what they are. It's either T Hanks or uh, no T Hanks. Uh, this being the last of the Golden Fourteen, I feel like I know where everybody is. Uh, obviously, the next few films are going to be a more, more challenging in terms of the ranking. Um, and we're going to start with uh, Luke. T Hanks? No T Hanks. It is definitely a T Hanks. So much so that it inspired uh, a, a really bad short film that I made. Uh, called Conman Denominator, uh, which is all about a conman who goes undercover as a math teacher, and the math teacher gets mistaken for the conman, and hilarity ensues, um, but not very much because it's bad. Uh, but that was a film that I made <laughs> in year ten at GCSE, um, and a film that is referenced multiple times in my latest short film because I liked the idea of referencing this awful film I made that no one has seen uh, except some people have seen it because somehow I got Carl Pilkington to do a voiceover cameo in it um, nice and I, I, every time I think about that I think oh I wasted him <laughs> like, I, I don't think he's he'll agree to anything else um, but yes essentially that wasn't a way to plug Conman Denominator even though the best thing is the title uh, which I didn't come up with uh, but it it had such a huge influence on me in terms of the fact that I, despite the film being made before I was born, I have two chinchillas named after characters from it. I recorded a cover song of one of the songs from the musical, and I inspired uh, a terrible short film I made in 2019. So it's it's definitely T. Hanks for me. And Ollie? Well, on DiCaprio Recapio. Um, we've got our own uh, rating system, which is uh, we either give it a Leo no or a Leo yeah, and this is a this is a full Leo yeah from me. Um, I'm not sure who this T Hanks guy is, but he's very good. Um, the entire movie from start to finish is an absolute delight. I genuinely loved it. So yeah, listen to it. Tom Hanks is brilliant in the in the movie. Uh, he's brilliant in every movie that I've seen him in, really, and. Um, yeah, which is this one. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great film. I think everybody should watch it. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, just go watch the movie. It's great. I, I, as I think obviously before we recorded, we said, you know, like it's it's more than two hours, but it just doesn't feel like that. Like, you know, it, it breezes by so quickly. I mean, it's definitely a tea hangs for me. Um, you know, from this point on, I don't think the ratings are going to be guaranteed. But, uh, you know, it's it's rare so far that there've been any films that've been no T Hanks for me, um, and like I said, you know, ninety six percent on Rotten Tomatoes, eighty nine percent from the audience. Like, it's such a it's such a well loved film, and of course. So you've hinted a lot. What the heck is next that that ruins well, this? Stream? We get to, we get to that at the end of this at the end of the plugs. Oh, sorry. Uh, you'll find out, Luke. You know, hold your horses, as one might say. Um, this is obviously the second time that he's working with Steven Spielberg. They'll work again in a couple of years' time. It's interesting because after this. Tom Hanks didn't do any, like, as before, before the Golden 14 started, he took 1991 off. 
And then he came back in 1992 with League of Their Own. After this, he took 2003 off. And then he came back with three films in 2004. <laughs> so, um, you know, we know what he was doing. Most of the time, he was... Uh, Wearing an extremely tight suit with balls on it and dancing around for Robert Zemeckis. Um, but he took time in between to do another couple of films in the come out in 2004. Um, but yeah, so this is the second time, obviously. I just realised Polar Express is coming yeah. up, Dan. Uh, so this is obviously the second time working with Steven Spielberg. They'll work again a few more times before we get to the current day. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think we should go to plugs. Is there anything that we wish to plug? I'm going to start with Ollie because I feel like this is going to be a quicker one than. What Luke's got yeah, um, the, the only thing I, I'm doing podcast, I, I still guest a lot on Sarah F. Decker's podcast, Med, um, Media Evil, where she runs through medieval set movies. Um, and she's, and she's a, a professor of medieval studies. So it's great to sit and see somebody who is an expert in that time period break down medieval set movies and then i get to go on every now and then and go oh dude stab with sword in face me love uh, and i sound like a neanderthal next to somebody who is indeed very very smart so yeah listen to media evil um and my students have a podcast called criminal finds where they talk about real life crimes um so yeah if you can find criminal finds somewhere it's, it's good if you want to listen to teenagers talking about crimes um my podcasts that uh have ran their full course and are not on an indefinite hiatus uh, were Please Be Seated wherein guests would analyse a film of their choice, uh, followed by the minute-by-minute show Two Minutes About Time analysing About Time, Two Minutes at a Time with fantastic range of guests from fellow podcasters to people like Richard Curtis to fans of About Time that have nothing to do with About Time, like Darren Brown that happened for some reason um, and then we've also got uh, Christmas actually, as we're heading towards the Christmas season, I assume we are when the show comes out as well. Um, Love actually, day by day, over the Christmas season was great fun and a interesting way to tear that film apart. I think, um, and I both love and dislike it more. <laughs> like, like there were some bits where it was like, oh, that angers me, and other bits where I was like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> Uh, mostly the fact that um, a lot of the t- when you tear it up day by day, you realise that a lot of the continuity time-wise does not work. Because it's almost as if Richard Curtis didn't write and direct the film with the intention of people analysing it day by day. Um, but yeah, um, Love Rosie podcast uh, is is a thing that I've started and will finish at some point. Uh, but I'm a filmmaker, uh, so go check out some of the stuff I'm doing as a filmmaker. Uh, my website's down at the moment, annoyingly, but a lot of my work at the now from about summer onwards is with Rocking Horse Media, the Oswald Street-based film company. So if you head over to rockinghorsemedia.co.uk, the high chance is whatever they've got on, I'm probably in. And you can find us at the extremely awkward Twitter handle T underscore FT Memory. Thanks to both of you for being my guests here today. Oh, absolute pleasure as always, Darren. Thanks for not shutting up most of my tangents. Um, it's it's been good fun. Does uh, are there any more Leonardo DiCaprio movies to come on your? <laughs> no, this is as as with as with his film with Denzel. This is I think the only time that Tom has worked with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, so unfortunately, you, there's no more crossovers. Um, well, I think we can all agree that in this film, Leonardo DiCaprio was very much a lady killer, and so next time we're going to be seeing Tom try to match him and being part of the lady killers